Well, thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're now going to hear from God's Word, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read our passage for this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we turn to your Word that you would please soften our hearts, that you would please open our minds and open our ears to hear from you and what you might have to say to us. Lord, prepare us in this very moment. And we ask that as you do speak to us, and as we do hear your word by your spirit, that you might transform us to grow, to be more like your son, Jesus. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. It's going to come up on the screen, but if you want, feel free to grab a Bible and read along with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you are receiving a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner 
and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, let me add my welcome uh, to that given by Ness and Grant before. If you don't know me, my name's Mao York. I'm the senior minister here, and it's always a privilege to come and look at God's word with you. One of the things that I've loved about moving back to Roseville uh, and the North Shore is being reminded uh, of places that I, where I grew up, because I, I grew up here in Kalara. Uh, actually, often I'll drive down the street or end up at a place where I used to hang out, such as the 7-Eleven on the highway in Linfield. Uh, you know, the one opposite the bridge at the railway line. Uh, I, it used to actually be a Quicks food store back in the day, and I worked there during my university days. I remember it for a few reasons. The dodgy hot dogs that used to sit on that war, those warm rollers. Do you remember them? Um, they seemed to sit there for days, and they were so disgusting, yet people would come and purchase them. But probably a better memory is one of the nicest compliments I've ever been given my, by my boss at the time. She told me that I was one of the best workers she ever had worked with. Uh, And I shared two things in common with the other person that she shared this opinion of. First, both of our names were Malcolm. That was pretty cool. It's not such a popular name. Uh, But secondly, we were both Christians. Now, I was really amazed when she said this. I mean, I had spoken to her about my faith in scant details, but now she was equating my actions and that of another Malcolm's actions with our faith. As I said, it was one of the best compliments that I've ever received. Well, today we continue on in our series in 1 Peter, and we start to get very practical in Peter's teaching. Up until this point, it's been so encouraging, hasn't it, to be reminded who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a royal priesthood. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an inheritance that can never spoil, fade, or perish. I mean, how good is this? So with this in mind, Peter has ended off last week by reminding us that how we live and how we speak matters as we hold this hope. Today, he shows us what this looks like. And the basic message that I'm keen for you and I to take away from the talk today is this. In any situation, live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus. Let me say that again. In any situation, live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I mean by this? This is what we're going to be looking at today. So let me pray as we come to look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can look at your Word, albeit in strange times through this live stream. But we know that your Spirit is not bound by by these physical uh, places that we meet in. And so we pray that your Spirit will go out from your Word through this live stream today into everyone's hearts to change us and to mold us to be more like you so that we can live this life in any situation that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us strength to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you do have your Bibles open there, it will be helpful to have them at that passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, as I refer to the passage throughout the talk. The first aspect that we see is that we are to live such good lives in this world that those who don't trust God see how we live and credit this work of God in our lives to him. Peter starts out there in verse 11 by saying, Dear friends, live as foreigners and exiles. That is, live so differently from those around us that we look like aliens and foreigners to them. This is the driving point for Paul over these next few verses. 
You can always tell a tourist in Sydney, can't you? They're looking semi-lost. They're dressed just that bit differently, acting like they're Alice in Wonderland, but in Sydney, and speaking for the most part in a different language. Peter is calling for Christians to be like this in the way that we live in this world, as foreigners and aliens and exiles. When Peter wrote this, however, I think that there would have been a stark difference in the society around him and how he was calling Christians to live. You only need to read Tom Holland's book, Dominion, or John Dixon's book, Bullies and Saints, to see that the social morals of the first century were vastly different to that of today. When Peter wrote this letter, infanticide was practiced. Expelling the sick and disease from the city was common rather than caring for them. Sexual promiscuity was part of everyday life and even religious observance. And the idea of equality among the sexes or even some sort of human rights This was so far from the thoughts of most in society. But the influence of Christianity over society for the past 2,000 years has completely changed and impacted our world. The majority of people today live such good lives because their morals and virtues have been laid out by a Christianized world. So much so that Holland concludes that the presumption and morals of Christianity are infused in people today so utterly that many failed even to detect their presence. And so the call from Peter to Christians to live differently to the pagans around them in this original context would have felt like a greater contrast than we may feel now. People are generally living good Christian moral lives, aren't they? Influenced by Christendom. And we may be tempted to ask, how are we to be different? Well, friends, in my opinion, the tide of society is turning. The morals of Christianity are being questioned and parts of society are heading back to the morals of pre-Christian rule that we see in the first century. For example, abortion for things like sex of a baby or disability is legal in many countries. Sexuality is no longer assumed, but it's up for grabs depending on the feelings of an individual. And sexual promiscuity is as ripe as ever. And I'm sure I could go on and our society is screaming at us to get in line with their beliefs. And so as society changes, we need to make sure that we're not buying into the lie that their way is the right way. And so it's into this context today that we need to hear these words of Peter afresh in verse 11. Abstain from these sinful desires that wage war against the souls. And friends, it is a war. It's a battle for us to live according to God's ways and not the sinful ways of the world around us. I wonder whether persecution like the original hearers of these words for us is actually not far around the corner so how are we to live well peter goes on in verse 13 submit yourselves to every human authority now peter's going to use this word submit a few times in the passage and we need to ask what it means it's become an ugly word in our society because people have abused it in the past the first thing that needs to be said is that this is not a dominance word And a person that you submit to plays no role in how you do this. For this reason, submission to someone can be never used as an excuse for anyone to abuse anyone else in any way. Physically, emotionally, economically, sexually or spiritually. Nor should anyone say to anyone else, you must submit to me for any reason at all. If they say this, They have no understanding of its word or its biblical use. The word on submission is only ever for the one submitting to hear. 
Rather, in his commentary on 1 Peter, Paul Barnett points out that submission is more like an honor word. You honor the role that a person has been given in a current situation. So submission is voluntary on behalf of the person submitting. Never enforced, never for abuse. For abuse. Let me say that again, just to be clear. If anyone is being told to forcefully submit to anyone in any situation and uses a passage like this as their justification, it is just wrong and not what the Bible teaches here. Rather, what we see in the passage is that submission is something that we all do in different contexts. Notice that whenever Peter uses the word submit, he is tying it back to verse 12. The guiding principle in any situation is live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. And this means submitting to one another in various situations. I can remember when I took my kids to the Gold Coast theme parks back in 2013. They were 11 and 13 uh, years old at the time, my, my, my boys. They'd been waiting all year to go on this particular ride called the Aqualoop. But they needed to weigh over 45 kilograms. To aid in this, to ensure that they would try and get on the ride, they ate heavily the whole drive from Sydney to the Gold Coast, hoping that they would pass that weight restriction. It's quite a classic moment in the York family history. I would have been happy for my kids to go on the ride, even if they didn't pass the weight test. I was proud of their achievements in trying to get the correct weight. However, when we arrived, sadly, Tom only came up to 42 kilograms. Sorry, Tom only came up to 42 kilograms and Sam had even less. They were devastated. And there was this spotty little 17-year-old kid telling them that they couldn't go on the ride. I thought to myself, he doesn't know what's best for my kids. I do. I thought they'd be okay and they, they, they'd be good enough to go on the ride. But because of his role in the theme park, I didn't kick up a fuss, but submitted myself to his role, even though he was 22 years my junior. Friends, I use this by example to say that we all submit to one another, to other people at a time, according to the role that they have. And so first up in the passage here, Peter is calling on Christians to demonstrate a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ through civil obedience, to ensuring that we live according to the laws of the land. We need to make sure that we're, we're keeping the laws of the land for the good of all people. Why? Because as we do the right thing, this will ensure that it will stop the talk of foolish people. It's been so hard, hasn't it, to see people practicing civil disobedience over the past few weeks and crediting their actions to that of the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw this, I don't know if you did, in the protests, thinking that they're somehow bringing glory to God. But the reality is this doesn't lead to others thinking better of Jesus, nor his followers. In fact, it normally has the opposite to effect to what they're trying to achieve. And I think this is what Peter is urging Christians here to be like, to be those who are obedient to every human authority, to follow the laws of the land, and this will silence the talk of foolish people. In other words, it will stop people speaking badly about God because of our actions and our words. And finally, in this section, Peter calls for Christians to live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus by not using their freedom to cover up for evil. Can you see there in verse 16? Don't do things that are wrong, that are, are against what uh, the, our society is speaking about, uh, the laws that come up, claiming some sort of Christian virtue behind it. Instead, we're to see ourselves as slaves of God, those who obey him. How do we do this? It's there in verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. 
fear God and honor the emperor. If we can keep these things in mind, then it will impact drastically how we are living. It's a good question to ask of ourselves, isn't it, this morning? How are we going about doing these things? Well, friends, Peter moves on from thinking generally of Christians living in the society around them to specifically thinking about two situations that Christians might find themselves in, that of slavery and marriage. But the driving principle in both of these, and it needs to be seen, in any situation, live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's not teaching something new or different here, but rather he's applying what he's already said back in verse 12 to these specific situations. First, he's addressing slavery. Now, before I get into what Peter is saying here, it's important to see that Peter is not advocating for slavery. People is simply addressing how a person who finds themselves becoming a Christian while they're in slavery should act. You can imagine when a person was a slave and they became a Christian, they're suddenly on equal footing in the sight of God with their master. They might even attend a church together with their master and hear God's word preached together next to each other. They are both valued as God as much as one another. They are equals before God in every way. So how is a slave to act with this in mind? Well, we see the answer there in verse 18. In reverent fear of God, they're to live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ by submitting themselves to their master. In other words, although you are equal as human beings before God, submit yourself to the master in the role that he has. Notice that there are good and considerate masters, but there are also ones that are harsh. It actually may seem rather odd to our ears to hear that Peter is encouraging slaves to bear up under any punishment let alone distinguish between just and unjust punishment. And indeed, I would not want to draw any parallel between this and us today, that somehow we should continue to suffer unjustly in any situation that we're in. That is, unless we're suffering for standing firm as Christians. But I don't think that this is what the passage is saying here. Rather, for the slave at the time, who had no options, no rights at all really, except for who they are in the sight of God through Christ, they would have focused on who God is to them, and then act in accordance with this. So see there in verse 18, in reverent fear of God. And then in verse 19, because they're conscious of God. And in verse 20, this is commendable to God. And then in verses 21 to 25, we see how Christ was unjustly punished. But as he was, see in verse 23, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The slave is to use this motivation of what Jesus went through to persevere even in the hardest times. Friends, I think if Peter was here with us, he would agree that slavery is wrong, that anyone in the image of God should not be kept as slaves. But in the time of writing, slavery was a part of the society. And for many slaves, this was to be their life and there was no escaping, no matter what Peter said. So Peter writes to them saying this, firstly, acknowledging them as part of God's family. I mean, that's pretty amazingly countercultural for the time. But secondly, urging them to keep their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and their eternal reward in the forefront of their minds as they live their lives for him. Then act in accordance with this, knowing that God will bring about justice for any injustice that they will face. Peter says it is commendable before God if you live this way. And my hunch is that if a slave did live this way, would actually have a positive impact for the gospel on his master. 
and possibly even fare better for a better life for them. Now, Peter doesn't say this explicitly, but in the context of the whole passage, my instinct is this is why he calls slaves to live this way. So they actually might win their masters to the Lord Jesus Christ. The question becomes, how is this applicable to us? Well, as I've said, I don't want to draw a direct parallel because we don't live as slaves in this same way, except to say this focus on living in reverent fear to God and the awesome hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and live in a way that is commendable to God are all great principles that we should think through. They are great principles to live by when we are thinking about how in any situation we are to live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I've alluded to, this may lead to some form of suffering on the account of our faith, especially as the tide of our society changes. But it's a great attitude for us to all have in the hope that we might win someone watching to the Lord Jesus. It may win someone to glorifying God. Well, friends, finally, we turn to the households of the time. Firstly, the passage addresses wives. Can you see there in verse 1 of chapter 3? Now, remember that the driving point behind submission in all of these contexts is what we've seen in verse 12. In other words, wives are also called to live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ in any situation that they're in. Now, let me point out uh, what we will see in a few minutes, that husbands are also to submit to their wives as wives are called to submit to their husbands. In fact, we see it in verse 7 of chapter 3, that husbands in the same way need to be considerate of their wives. These words, in the same way, points husbands back to verse 12, that they too are to live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. And although the word submit is not used, it is certainly implied. But we've also seen this in places like Ephesians chapter 5, 21, that submission is mutual in marriage. But I'll speak more to husbands in a minute. Uh, this word now is to the wives only. Wives, notice that there's a real reason behind submission, so that the unbelieving husband may be won over by the behavior of the wife. We need to notice here that Peter is speaking to a specific situation. These women who have become Christians, but their husbands are not. It was custom for wives in the first century to take on the God of their, their husbands. But what is a wife to do now that she has become a Christian? Well, Peter is saying this, live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ in any situation. I think this is incredible teaching. The idea that someone's behavior could lead to another person being won over for the Lord Jesus Christ is just amazing. What sort of life can win someone to the Lord Jesus Christ? And my question to us all, not just wives, is this. Are we willing to live it? Well, Peter goes on to speak about how it's not a life that's defined by outer beauty, by outer things, but it's what happens on the inside. Peter speaks about a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, Peter is not saying that a person with a gentle and quiet spirit is someone who does not speak, who remains silent, who doesn't speak their mind. This is not a command by Peter for women to be silent in a relationship, only ever doing what the husband says and not having their own opinions and own thoughts. No, clearly, Peter wants the wife to remain Christian here, not to change and be according to her, husband, her husband's faith. In fact, I would argue this gentle and quiet spirit qualities are not only for a woman to possess, but for any men, we need to listen here as well. Rather, what speak, Peter is speaking about is the way that someone can be won to the Lord Jesus Christ by someone else. Someone who lives in such a way that although they continue to speak their mind and be who they are, they do it with a gentle and quiet spirit. Not argumentative, not demanding, but modeling a Christ-like life. 
It's really interesting that Peter then takes us to Sarah and Abraham to illustrate this point. For anyone who knows the account of Sarah and Abraham, Sarah is not someone who held back what she thought, especially in this account that Peter's referring to in Genesis 18, where Sarah refers to him as Lord. Rather, it's actually in the middle of her speaking her mind that this happens. This is not what Peter means when he speaks about a gentle and quiet spirit. But what Peter is pointing to is a deep respect Sarah has for the promises of God, which impacts how she lives with Abraham. Now, again, this passage is not suggesting that women call their husbands Lord. But rather what Sarah is demonstrating is a deep respect for God's promises in the way that she respects her husband and submits to him. The application that I see here for wives is this. Live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ so all can see. For those who are married to someone who doesn't believe, it may help to win them over, as I've said. I also think that this is applicable to men, which I'll speak about more in the next section. But before I move on to speaking about men in a married relationship, just a quick word to husbands about what I've said to the wives. This passage is not a license for any man to force his wife to do anything against her, against her will, nor a license for a man to practice any type of dominance. There is no justification for you to perpetrate any form of domestic violence over your wives from this passage, whether it be physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, economic abuse, or spiritual abuse. This passage simply does not allow it. In fact, as we go on, you will see it's the opposite. Look there in verse 7, husbands. In the same way, we need to be like this to our wives. In the same way, once again, he's taking us back to verse 12. Husbands are to live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus. Husbands are to submit to their wives, to treat them with respect and to treat them as the weaker partner. In other words, to love and to care for them, to protect them. Can you see how this gives absolutely no grounds for abuse? Husbands, are you protecting your wives physically, sexually, emotionally, economically and spiritually? Now, in the time Peter was writing this, it certainly was the case that women were socially and economically, in most cases, biologically weaker. Peter is saying, husbands, you need to care for your wives here, remembering that they are co-heirs of eternal life with you. Now, today, thank God, wives are not necessarily weaker in these same ways. It is wonderful that that's the case. But they still are heirs of eternal life. And so in the same way as wives submit to their husbands, husbands must submit to their wives, honoring them loving them and treating them as absolute equals, heirs of eternal life. In fact, I would argue husbands are to be, need to be more self-sacrificial in their marriage in order to uplift their wives, to be Christ-like here. I also think that protecting your wives, men, is still our role today in, in all the ways I've outlined above, but not in any way that smothers them or insinuates dominance over them. We see more teaching on this in places like Ephesians 5. But while Peter is addressing a married couple separately, I'd like to take this passage a step further and address those who are married and speak to them as a couple and ask, how are you together showing your combined inner beauty so that through your marriage, you proclaim the grace of God? Now, friends, a word to those who are single just to finish off this section. It's important to say that while this passage doesn't address your situation specifically, the principles remain the same. The idea of submitting to someone in marriage is obviously not the case in this scenario. But the way that you live impacting, uh, the way that you live does impact how other people see you. And that does matter. The idea that you can, in any situation, live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ so that friends and colleagues can bring glory to God 
is a very real challenge for you as it is for anyone who is married. It is also your inner beauty that should shine, both men and women who are single. Through this, we can all be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether we're married or single, through the way that we live. And God may use us to bring others to glorifying him. Well, friends, let me conclude. In any situation, are you living a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the way that you are living causing people to glorify God, or does it bring God's name into disrepute? Peter is challenging us that no matter what our situation is, we should be looking to live out who we are in Christ Jesus, so much so that we look different to those around us. We become like aliens and strangers in this world. Did anyone catch the women's high jump final last night? Nicola McDermott did exactly this. Not only did she conduct herself during the competition in a way that pointed people beyond the silver that she won, people, their hearts were just won to her, but then she spoke about her faith in the most public and wonderful way. She's a great example of someone that is living a life that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ in any situation. And it's as we live this way, people will notice us and they may ask us about the hope that we believe in. So we should be ready to give this answer. But also our prayer is that they might glorify God and that through the way that we live, and it might even lead to some of them being saved. Let me pray that this will be the case. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this word today. We are so thankful for this call to live lives that reflect the Lord Jesus Christ in any situation that we are in. But Father, we need your spirit and we need your strength to live this way. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll give this to us and through this, it might be your good purpose and glory to win some to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thank you very, very much, Mal. I know that um, this week has been a week of very careful and thoughtful preparation, and I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, we have about three or four questions that are kind of asking the same thing, so I'm just going to um, go off the cuff. But essentially, people are saying, with the idea of submitting to authority, is there ever a time where it's okay to push against authority that has um, principles or policies or laws that go against our Christian lives. Um, what would you do in the case of, say, apartheid? I mean, we've been there, but put ourselves in that situation. Is it okay to push against authority rather than submit? Totally. I think it is absolutely okay uh, as long as you do it within the means of the law of the time. So uh, if I was to point to the protest that happened last week, I think it is our right as citizens to protest. But they should have done it with masks, they should have done it socially this, and they should have done it in a better way. There is a way to do these things. Uh, and so we can, uh, it's part of our society to be able to stand a, a, against what the government is doing, but we do it in such a way that it, it, we keep within the laws and we bring glory and honour to God. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, Mal, follow-up question. Uh, thinking ahead to a time where the laws might be uh, so that we have to go against our Christian values, I guess it's a similar question, but how do we uh, continue to love the city that we're in and to submit to authorities with laws that actually change the way that we might minister. Yeah, totally. This is where we need to look at the book of Daniel because Daniel does this brilliantly and is a wonderful mm. example to us. He doesn't compromise his relationship with God uh, no matter as the laws change around him, mm. but he 
plan, he does it in a way that does not necessarily bring attention to himself. So, uh, although some people obviously do see him and so bring him before, but uh, he, we, we're not to compromise our relationship with God, uh, and we're to serve Him first and foremost, and do it the best we can within uh, the laws of the land. But if they do change, um, uh, early Christians are a wonderful example of that because that's the world that they lived in, and they stood firm in their faith to the very end. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Thank you, Mel. Um, this is a question about any parallel between uh, modern employment and slavery. And um, I know you were hesitant to draw any parallels, but um, is there any way that we need to think about the context of master-slave in our current work relationships? Yeah, look, I, I, I thought of addressing that. Obviously, the sermon was quite long. Uh, there's, uh, there was a lot to address in that. Um, I, I, there's no... Slavery was so different in the time. You were really owned by the person. We're not owned. We can travel between different employments. If, if we do find things really hard, we can change. We have a lot more freedoms than a slave would have. And so I'm finding it hard to uh, draw that parallel. Um, but the parallel of uh, that we need to be those in any situation that live a life that reflect the Lord Jesus, absolutely we can draw those parallels. We can take that principle out of that slave master thing and apply it to our situations in work as well. But I'm hesitant to do anything more than that because there are so many differences. Yeah, and I suppose it's worth saying we we actually do have slavery in our modern world. We're, we haven't done away with slavery. Um, this, this isn't in the passage today, but we certainly need to consider our own sort of purchasing habits and other things that might be contributing to that because we know that's not God's way. Totally, and, uh, and supporting those organisations that are freeing people from slavery yeah. uh, should be really at the front of our minds as well because they're doing a wonderful job and really no one should be living in slavery today. Yeah, thank you, Mal. One last question. <clears throat> um, you've described submission as voluntary and I, I really loved your description of submission, so thank you for that. Um, but this idea of submission being voluntary is something that is being discussed at the moment. If submission is taught and seen as the godly way of life, which I think it is, isn't it possible that some people wouldn't feel like it's voluntary? So, for example, um, for some women, uh, they might feel the need to stay in, a, in an abusive relationship in order to do the godly thing. So my question to you um, is what you would say to a woman who would feel like she needs to stay in an abusive relationship as a voluntary act of submission? Yeah, I think my personal feeling is that that's a, a misapplication of this passage mm. um, uh, in terms of uh, submission is voluntary. Uh, it's, it's uh, I guess, the best example that I used, which is not of that, was that 17-year-old kid that I sub submitted to in the role that he had. Um, but, uh, but I think when someone is abusing the role of that submission um, and is enforcing that upon you because that's uh, their mm -hmm. dominance, uh, I actually think that's not the... Especially in a marriage, uh, if we look at places like Ephesians 5, actually that's, that's not uh, a, a marriage that we're sub to submit to people to because mm -hmm. it's, it's that dominance sort of thing. Uh, I think it's a misunderstanding of what mm -hmm. uh, Ephesians 5 says. Um, I, I'm also, when uh, it, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about marriage as well. Um, and in that situation, it talks about uh, marriage when you're married to someone who is an unbeliever. If someone is dominating you and, and uh, if they are 
um, enforcing things like this upon you, uh, domestic abuse, domestic violence and things like that, they're acting like an unbeliever, mm. okay? That's not the way that a believer should be living. Mm. Um, and I think there's a real, the real tension here is uh, he says he's a Christian, but he acts in this sort of way. Mm. We need to remember that Jesus' teaching is about the fruit, isn't it? It's, about you, it's not just confessing, but it's how you live as well. Mm. And if someone is living this way and they are saying one thing with their mouth, but they are acting another way, I don't think they're living their life as a Christian. And mm. I, I think there are, um, there's teachings in 1 Corinthians that's, that help us there that say, actually, mm. uh, if they're not living as a Christian in that way, then there's, there's mm. grounds for leaving that. Mm. And so I would be encouraging people uh, to not be remaining under a situation uh, where there's domestic violence. Uh, mm. And that's really important. There, we can help. There are ways of helping. Uh, it doesn't mean that there can't be the possibility of working through mm. these and, and saving the marriage. I'm certainly not saying that. Mm. But it also uh, doesn't discount that um, if that person is not going to change, mm. then uh, it's better not to remain in that situation would be my opinion. That's helpful, Mal. And I think there are ways for a woman in an abusive um, marriage to leave and stay godly. So you can still want that person to receive it, the help that they need. You can still um, pray for their salvation and their change and their um, the change in their behaviours, but still be safe and elsewhere. So it is possible for a woman to still be godly, right, in Absolutely. that situation. Hey, thank you very much. That was really, really helpful and I, and I really appreciate it. We're going to um, respond to all of that in prayer now. Grant's going to lead us. Thanks.